Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you guys are doing well. Guys, we're going to jump right in. I just do want to, uh, I want to share with you, I know, that the, I know that the messages have been a lot to take in, a lot to uh, consume, and, and I'm trying to do this in the best way that I can. Um, but I encourage you that if you will dig into the, the principles and the ideas and the concepts that I'm sharing, I promise you, you will, you will be better for them. You may not agree with me. It's okay. But you will be better for them, uh, for studying them. Uh, that being said, I want to talk to you first about uh, a governing principle for the conversations that uh, I hope to have here at Pierce Point, and I hope to have in my entire life. It's not always the case, and I'll share a little bit of this with you. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna set the stage, and this is the two fill out uh, fill in the blanks on your card, and then everything else is notes today because there's just a lot of stuff. Okay, um, but the first two things that I want you to see uh, are two concepts. The first one is called philia sophia. Philia sophia. If you put that together, this is philosophia, right? This is where we get the term philosophy, right? In the Bible, this is the Greek term. Um, and it literally means the love of wisdom, the love of wisdom, philosophia or philia sophia. That's what we're pursuing in this. The second idea is this, philia nikea. Can you switch to the next one? Philia nikea. This is the love of victory. By the way, the goddess Nike is where Nike gets their name. Nikea is a people of victory. It is somehow we, we work this in to be uh, a, the love of victory. These two ideas uh, need to be thought through, and we need to be careful how we approach ideas when we go forward. And what I mean by that is that we need to approach all ideas out of philia sophia, a love for wisdom, and not philia nikea, which is a love to be right, a love for victory. That's our problem. We wrestle with this deeply in this culture. We want to be right more than we want to listen. We want to be right more than we care about another person. We love this. And the problem is that our conversations get shut down when Philia Nikea takes over. How many of you know that? How many of you have been in an argument with your spouse? Go, let's just start there. <laughs> right? Yeah, rest you just trying to lie, right? You're in an argument with your spouse, and the reason why you can't make any room or make any progress is because all you care about is being right. All you care about is victory. Listen, don't start a fight right now, Ryan, okay? I don't, I don't need a fight right now, okay? So, the idea is that we're, we're obsessed with this. But when we talk about these things, what we should be pursuing is a deep desire for wisdom. Philia Sophia. I will admit to you, I struggle with this. I struggle with this deeply. It is a very fun thing to be right. Isn't it? Isn't it? Don't, don't just... Don't like act like you're crazy or I'm crazy and you don't know anything about this. It is fun to be right. But sadly, even at times when we're right, we can destroy a relationship because we're obsessed with just proving our points. And this becomes dangerous, and I struggle with this. Um, in Philia Sophia, though, 
our deep desire, again, is to love wisdom, to gain wisdom, to see wisdom uh, for all that it's worth. And I am a firm believer that all wisdom, all wisdom is actually wisdom given from God. I believe that deeply. I, I also believe that when we look at the book of Revelation that is uh, nature, I believe that it declares the glory of God too. So nature declares the glory of God. All wisdom declares the glory of God. God's word declares the glory of God. I think we, we need to be a people of wisdom. We need to be governed by this love for wisdom. How many of you have ever heard uh, Proverbs eighteen seventeen? The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. How many of you know this? It seems right until somebody cross-examines you. And guess what? Here's what's really important about this. Can you hand me my water? What's really important about this is that you, this cross-examination can go on for a long time. So you can state a point and somebody can cross-examine you. And guess what? You might be able to cross-examine them back. And they might cross-examine you again. But if we operate with philia sophia, a love for wisdom, we won't get our hackles up. We won't be bothered by the idea that, our, that somebody cross-examines us and corrects our perspective. But if we are dogmatic and we are absolutely set in our ways, we'll never listen. And it becomes a problem. So the first thing, philia sophia, not philia nikea. A love for wisdom, not a love for victory. The second thing is perspectival knowing, which I brought up a couple of weeks ago. I want you guys to remember what this means, because it's going to come in view in this complicated uh, message today. Perspectival knowing is knowing how to perceive the world. Let me give you an example of a couple of these pieces of knowing. Um, if you have a hammer and you have a nail, and you are able to drive nails without bending them, what you have is procedural knowledge and you have propositional knowledge, right? You know what a hammer's for, right? How many? Yep, you know what a hammer's for. You know what a nail does. You know how it works. You then procedurally work that out and you begin to know how to do it. I remember when I was working on mom and dad's fence when I was young, the neighbor across the, across the way, his name was Bob, and he was, uh, he was putting these boards up, and, and this horse fence, Kentucky horse fence style, he was putting these boards up, and these boards were solid oak boards, okay? Well, guess what? If you don't know how to nail a nail well, what are you going to do? You're going to bend it all the time. And I got out there. He wanted me to help him, and I was eager to help him, so I went out there, and I'm like bending nails left and right. I just, it was bad right? This is Nathan not doing well. And I was young, and Bob sat down with me, and he was a gruff guy and didn't get along with most people. I don't think he even got along with himself. But anyway, so, but he sat down with me, and he said, and he said you, you have to do it this way. I want to show you how to do it. And he taught me procedural knowledge. He did. He taught me how to skip off the nail head so that I could drive it perfectly. And then we went down the rest of the way, and I didn't bend a nail from that point on. It was pretty awesome. I learned procedural knowledge. Perspectival knowledge, though, is different because perspectival knowledge makes you look at the situation, you know how to perceive the world, and you actually know when it's not a nail and it's a screw. And what do you do when it's not a nail and it's a screw? You use a different tool, don't you? When it comes to our interpretation of the Bible, when it comes to our reading of the Scripture, we have got to be careful that we're not constantly using the tool of modern-day science 
in order to understand it. Sometimes we need to use the tool. There's nothing wrong with science. I don't have a problem with it at all. But we have to make sure that we use the tool at times of the culture, gaining the perspective of an ancient mind so that we can actually see what was written in these pages. This is a very important thing. Today, we're going to talk about the seven days of creation. The seven days of creation, and we're going to talk about that in light of that God is making an order, and he's ordering something for a purpose, which is a beautiful thing. Now, I'm going to drop something on you right off the bat so that you know where I stand on something, okay? And I, and I think that this is just an interesting thing for you. And maybe it'll be shock to you. Maybe you'll be like, whatever, I figure, right? The days of creation were seen as literal 24-hour periods. You're like, well, you should believe that, Nathan, shouldn't you? Not necessarily, but I do believe that they were viewed as 24-hour periods. Believe it or not, though, that wasn't the point of Genesis 1. It wasn't the point of Genesis 1. As we learned last week, if we want to talk about the grammatical structure of Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and we want to understand what a restrictive relative clause is and dependent clauses and independent clauses, and we want to analyze words, what we will come to is that Hebrew allows and even promotes in Genesis 1, 1 through 3 the idea of multiple beginnings. Multiple beginnings would be something like this. There was a point at which God began to create angels. There was a point at which God began to create man. There was a point at which God began, by the way, to order the cosmos and the world that we know. And I believe, as I've shared with you, that that is what Genesis 1, 1 through 3 communicates. We don't need to argue and debate over six literal days or six figurative days in order to come up with an old earth or a young earth. It's actually an irrelevant discussion when you understand what the grammar of Genesis 1, 1 through 3 allows or even promotes. But I want you to realize that it absolutely does communicate, the Bible does communicate, that God was creating the world in seven literal days. Of course, theories about seven days abound, right? And I want you to hear some of these ideas. Questions of day one, having light and darkness. How many of you know that that happened? Let there be light, right? We know this. Day one. So one of the arguments against literal 24-hour periods is that the sun or the, the light and darkness are there. But what is meant by that? Because the days, the sun and the moon and the stars, the cosmic beings that govern the day and govern the seasons... They don't show up till when? Day four. Sounds like a legitimate argument. Sounds like a pretty solid argument to say, how can you measure the day if it doesn't show up till day four, even though you put light on day one? It would at best seem like days one through three could be long periods of time, right? You see the the idea of this argument, yes? Kind of makes sense. People say, well, God was the light in Genesis 1-1. So God said, let there be me. No, God wasn't the light. That was stupid. He's always been light. He was shining. But the idea is that he's shown light on the very thing that he was ordering, right? And so one argument would be that. The view that days one through three establish functions, that is the roles in the world. So light and darkness, 
the canopy over the skies, the heavens, the earth, land, and water. Day one through three establish the functions. And day four, days four through six reveal their functionaries or their agents. The sun, the moon, the stars, the animals, the humans, right? All of this stuff. Some people... Some people definitely here will know just how much ink has been spilled over the Hebrew word yom, which is the word day, and to no avail, I might add, because people are still arguing about what it means, right? Was it 24-hour periods? Was it not? But please hear me. Before you settle into your theological bunker, young earth creationists and old earth creationists are not monolithic. If you stand on this pedestal of young earth creation and you say, it is our way, just realize there's a ton of young earth creationists that disagree with themselves. Some say that the world is 6,000 years old. Some say it's 20,000 years old. Don't think for a second because you call yourself a name, you, you are in agreement with all those people. It's just not the case. And just because you might think of an old earth doesn't mean you're an evolutionary person, doesn't mean theistic evolution, doesn't mean you're any of those sorts of things. Because these people aren't monolithic. These ideas are constantly swirling and abounding. And I also want you to know this. Ideas like this and the debates around them are not new. We look at this and go, gosh, 21st century, we have such a conflict of interest, the Bible and science. It's been going on since day one. Okay, It's been going on since day one. So let me be clear. Even in the midst of those arguments, and listen to me, which you must consider. Don't sit there and look at an argument and go, no, <laughs> right? You're not allowed. You're not allowed. Not if you're going to be about philia Sophia. Not if you love wisdom and and instead of just being right. If you love wisdom, you will consider arguments and you will allow them to make sense of their own argument even if you disagree with them. It's fine. When we look at passages like Exodus 20 verse 11, as well as a strong or the plethora of strong implications from the New Testament authors, we have a high level of certainty that the ancient mind saw Genesis 1 and the seven days of creation as 24-hour literal periods. They read it. They said it. God created the day and God created the earth in six days and he rested on the seventh. It seems extremely clear in this. But... It's important to understand that that's their perspective, and that perspective is going to prove important in just one second. As I said before, though, although the days of creation appear plainly to be 24-hour periods, that's actually not the point of Genesis 1. How many of you know what an archetype is? You know what an archetype is? I'll define it for you, just so we can have it. An archetype is a typical example of a particular person or thing. That's not clear. Let's go with the second one. An original that has been imitated. That's awesome. An original that has been imitated. Uh, Who is the archetype of faith in the Bible? Who is the archetype of faith in the Bible? Abraham. Jesus, of course, follows his father. He does trust him. But every time we look at Hebrews 11, it says, look at this man of faith, and you should do this. You should be like this, right? So, so we're, we see Abraham as this amazing man of faith. Likewise, 
Creation is the archetype, that is the original, and the temple was considered a symbolic incarnation of that cosmic order. In other words, the temple was an imitation of what God did in those seven days. And God was declaring a truth, and the reason why we don't get it or it goes over our heads is because we have the wrong perspective. And then, when somebody confronts us with the right perspective, we go, nuh-uh, it can't be that way. And I hate to break it to you, but it can be that way. And it was that way. And if we'll just look for wisdom, if we'll just search it, I think we will find how this all begins to make sense. Just as the ancient minds saw 24-hour periods from their perspective, they also saw temple language in Genesis 1, something that we definitely don't see unless we change our perspective. So the first thing that I want to talk to you about is creation as a temple and the significance of the number 7. The significance of the number 7. Now listen, I'm not jumping down Bible code path, right? I'm not jumping down. If you add up all these words you're gonna, and numbers, you're going to find out when Jesus returns. You ain't, right? No man knows the day or the hour. I have a firm feeling that sometime he's going to come back during the Feast of Trumpets. That's all I got, right? I just have no idea when. It makes sense, doesn't it? A trumpet blast and Jesus returns? Let's go with that one, right? So, most of us are aware of the frequent use of the number seven within the Old Testament. We also know that it's a symbol for completion, perfection, and sacred order. But what many of us don't consider is that the number seven is woven into the structure of creation. It's woven into this literary uh, story in a pattern. And this is beyond the divisions of seven days, way beyond just seven days of creation. I want to share with you a summary that was given by Jeff Morrow uh, in an article in the Journal of Orthodox Center of Advanced Biblical Studies. How's that for a title? Um, I want to give you this summation that he has uh, regarding sevens within Genesis 1. And this is amazing because this continues, it always has, and it continues to marvel biblical scholars. Listen to this. In Hebrew, Genesis 1.1 contains seven words. Genesis 1-1 contains seven words. Genesis 1-2 has 14 words. That's two sevens in case you're bad at math. And God occurs 35 times, which is five sevens, on the se- in the seventh account. The term earth occurs 21 times, or three sevens. Heavens and firmament, 21 times, three sevens. The phrase, and it was so, appears seven times, as well as the phrase, God saw it was good. The important words, light and day, are found seven times in the first natural paragraph. And there are seven references to light in the fourth paragraph. In the section dealing with the creation of animals, the Hebrew word for living beings occurs seven times. In the seventh paragraph, which deals with the seventh day, there occurs three consecutive sentences, and each sentence contains seven words. And the phrase seventh day is dead in the center, which is a form of Hebrew poetry. Okay, And I would have to spend all day talking to you about this particular form of Hebrew poetry. Moreover, the Hebrew word in the seventh paragraph, the words in that paragraph, total 35 or five sevens. 
The list goes on beyond these examples. In fact, and this is still, uh, and this is still uh, Jeff Morrow's quote here. The list goes on beyond these examples. In fact, Genesis 1 breaks its literary pattern for the sake of contriving these sets of seven. For example, the phrase, it was good, is missing from verses 6 and 8. Why? To keep it at 7. Hmm, interesting. Verse 9 omits the formulaic description of its creative act, because it wants to keep it at 7. And verse 20 doesn't conclude with the phrase, and it was so, as one would expect. Why? To keep it at 7. The author of Genesis 1 is far more artistically cunning than most modern readers, even Christians, perhaps especially Christians, give him credit on the surface reading. Why is this so important to me? Why is it important or should it be important to you? Because from the writer's perspective, he was doing something. But from our perspective, he's given us a science book. And he's not. And he doesn't care what you think about it. He is simply declaring something. And to whom he declares it matters deeply, deeply, deeply. Creation happened in seven days. And all of this, all of this wording has, is centered around seven days because its focus is temple language. Again, we don't see it. We don't even know what a temple looks like. We just, we're out of it, right? We got church buildings. That's all we know. Creation in seven days was selected to communicate a theological message to its original readers. What was the message? Well, what it wasn't was science. What the message was, was that God was still on the throne. Listen to this. Very important. In short, most scholars agree that the primary message behind the days of creation the creation week, is that the world is God's temple. For Genesis' original audience, that would have been something they deeply needed to hear. And this is where your perspective is going to shift yet again. And this is a challenge. So Philea Sophia, seek for wisdom and see if this makes sense to you, okay? How so? Although current opinion is not unified as it used to be, Mainstream scholarship generally still holds that Genesis's creation account, I know, hard, we've already talked about this on how we got our Bible, the account was edited into its present form after the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem. How many of you know they lost the law? You know that, right? And then they recover this, and in some, some ways, they, their view is that these scribes uh, edited this and brought it in, okay? But this happens after Babylon conquers Jerusalem. The sources for Genesis are certainly far more ancient than this, but they were likely assimilated together as a coherent literary whole in the shadow of this devastating defeat. So think about who you are. You're Israelites. You have been led into captivity, and you have nothing. You have nothing. And all of a sudden, this account comes to you, okay? So imagine being in the shoes of the scribe who's likely behind the Hebrew creation account. The Jews thought that their scriptures had promised that their kingdom could never be dethroned, and Yahweh's temple was sacked and came crashing down at the hands of idolaters. So Yahweh's temple is down. 
His people are now forced to live in a foreign land under the dominion of a foreign god. We moderners usually have some cartoonish comprehension of polytheism. The ancients, the Babylonian warrior to the ancients, the Babylonian warrior god Marduk was no pushover on the developing world stage. We have tablets that consider this cosmic dragon slayer so mighty that they border on sounding proto-monotheistic or before the Jews in monotheism. When the temple fell, it looked like who won? Marduk. It looked like Marduk had eaten Yahweh's lunch. Perhaps Israel's warrior savior wasn't the strongest among the gods after all. One doesn't imagine the Judean worldview crisis would have, been, uh, would have been helped as thousands of its high officials were marched as prisoners into the expansive Babylonian metropolis, into this capital where a 230-foot, 70-meter-high temple of Marduk was fissuring the sky. So they're led into captivity. This is what's happening. Um, a guy by the name of Irving Finkel reflects, he says, the Judean deportees must have found themselves with nothing substantive at all to define their culture or hold their identity together. How do a people rapidly losing their traditions in a foreign land who cannot even look into a carved image for their God, because they're not allowed to make them, to aid their memory, expect to hold together their religious and national identity? It is probably from these hopeless ashes that the ancient creation narrative of Genesis flashes forth in renewal like a phoenix, implying that Genesis 1 is a defiant declaration of what? Science! Nope. Nobody there is thinking about this. Not one person is arguing 24 hours. They're not. They assumed it. They assumed it. God created the day, God created the world in six days, and on the seventh he rested. They assumed it, guys. It was fine. But what they were doing is they were seeing the declaration that Yahweh is still the true cosmic architect. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. He's the one who established its foundations. He is the one who is not dethroned and never will be dethroned. Right? Why is this hard for us to grasp? Because we have a wrong perspective. We can't even imagine the writer of Genesis implying something like this. We just can't do it. So much so that this is kind of the approach that we have towards this. This is a quote from, from uh, a scientist or a, a Christian scientist that also uh, backs up a young earth creation view. Okay, And I'm not dogging that. I just want you to understand the what's happening here. He says, if God didn't get the details right in Genesis, how can you trust that he got them right uh, on how to inherit eternal life? Does that sound like a wise question? It might sound like a wise question until it's cross-examined. And here's the cross-examination. Let's be clear. No one doubts that God got the details right. We just doubt your interpretation of those details. That's it. That's it. We doubt the interpretation of details because in many cases, these details are driven by our perspective and only our perspective. We can't see to the right. We can't see to the left. We sure as heck can't see from another person's vantage point. And because of that, we go, Genesis 1, temple language? Be honest with me. How many of you growing up in the church ever heard that Genesis 1 was reflecting temple language? Raise your hands. Look around. 
That's the point. You know what you were taught by? You were taught by people without the right perspective who didn't know these things. And this is very powerful because the result is all kinds of weird interpretations and all kinds of wrong interpretations because you don't see and I didn't see in an ancient mind. What justification do we have for reading into the seven days the idea that the whole world is Yahweh's temple? You ready for some more amazing facts where you go, whoa, I never saw that. Here they are. Number one, Moses builds the tabernacle in Exodus 40, verses 17 through 33. Seven times in the building process, it is repeated that Moses carried out the construction of a given part just as Yahweh had commanded Moses. What is the significance of that? In other words, the tabernacle, like the world, was constructed in seven stages of divine commands. Let there be, let there be, let there be. The temple was constructed with seven instructions. Number two, the tabernacle priests were ordained in a seven-day process. Number three, Genesis 2.2 says, God finished the work, Exodus 40.33 reads, when Moses had finished the work. There is a completeness to what is happening. There is a, there is a final finish line, whatever you might say. Genesis 2.3 says that after the completion of creation, God blessed the seventh day. After the completion of the tabernacle in Exodus 39, we read that Moses blessed them. Because that was our job as kings and priests in this world, remember? Number five, after the blessing, Genesis 2.3 speaks of God sanctifying creation. Exodus 40 verse 9 speaks of Moses sanctifying the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. Do you see the echoes? Every step of the way, guys. Every step, without fail. God's presence was in Eden, number 6, as it was in the tabernacle. And this is really fun for all you language people out there. We are told that he would walk about in the garden, Genesis 3.8. Commentators note that this same Hebrew verb is strangely used of God walking about in the tabernacle in Leviticus 26.12 and Deuteronomy 23.15. Amazing how this works. Number seven, we are told that Adam and Eve were to work and keep the garden. These same two Hebrew verbs are only used together elsewhere the only time they're ever used together elsewhere to describe the job obligations of the priests who kept the tabernacle and later the temple. It's unbelievable, guys. Do you see these parallels? I know this is heady. I know there's a lot of stuff. But I want you to see, if you can read the Bible not from your vantage point and from another one, you're going to see a lot of stuff that you never imagined was there. And it's been there the whole time. And it's going, Yahweh's king. Not Marduk. Yahweh's king. The Baals can go suck it. Right? Like, this is what is happening. I know. You guys just need to break from it a little bit. Number eight. The furnishings of the tabernacle were created to resemble garden imagery. Many scholars believe that the seven-branched lampstand was modeled after the tree of life. Later, Solomon's temple in 1 Kings 6 greatly enhanced the garden imagery with its architectural carvings. And the sanctity of both places was guarded by a cherubim. That's fascinating. And this is a really amazing quote that is given by Michael Morales. Among scholars, the association between these two accounts is certain. Period. End of story. Right? That's an amazing statement. Why does this matter again? Because the writer of 
Genesis 1 is communicating something. And he's not communicating every other thing. He's communicating something very powerful. But when we misinterpret things and when we get wrong, we're no longer seeking wisdom. We're seeking justification for our viewpoint. We are philea nikea. And daggone it, I'm going to win and you're going to lose, right? And this is not how we should be as Christians. And I'll tell you this, even if there is pushback from these ideas, I'll listen to you all day and talk to you about it. Because I love this weird stuff. And I love the fact that God isn't just some mystery that we can't understand. He is a God who wants us to know him and wants us to understand, but we have to seek him in order to do it. And in order to seek him, we have to get the perspective and we have to get in the minds of people that we are not. Ancient minds, not us, okay? So Genesis 1 is also uh, a temple text that serves as a polemic against other gods. It is effectively saying, Marduk, sit down. Yahweh is on the throne. But look, it goes beyond this. It doesn't say that Yahweh is on a throne in a temple. It says that Yahweh is his temple is the entire cosmos. In other words, Marduk, have your fun with your 230-foot statue. I'm still going to crush it one day. Right? Like that's the God I want to serve. The earth is his footstool, church. He's like here. Massage my feet, guys. Right? God is this big, okay? So these sevens and this temple language, it's all important. I want to read you a couple other things. As Matilda Frey and John Walton point out, over half a millennium before Moses, the seven-day temple dedication shows up in various literature. In Sumerian literature, in texts that are over 4,000 years old, they speak extensively about the dedication festival of seven days for a temple called Eninu. And just like Genesis, the early temple was associated with the creation narrative. Their creation narrative was associated with their temple building. And so is the writer of Genesis. Nearly a millennium before Genesis 1 was edited, according to scholars, Baal was said to have completed his house on top of the cosmic mountain Zephanu in seven days, according to Ugaritic texts. Do you see the trend All I'm pointing out is not, I'm not pointing anything out about those ancient texts, except for this was common to an ancient Near Eastern mind. But what's common to us is, did he mean 24 hours, or was he talking about periods of time? And they're not asking the question. They read it and they go, oh my goodness, his temple is the whole thing. Oh my goodness, his temple is the whole thing. And he's put us as priests and king in it. Isn't that amazing? That is amazing. Ben Stanhope points out that Genesis 1 is not directly borrowing from these texts. That's important for you to know. Rest your mind and your heart at ease. This would be historically implausible. They don't draw from these texts. Genesis doesn't. The point is rather that the Bible, which is Near Eastern in its culture, uses motifs just like everybody else. And it communicates an amazing truth. This is where we've got to be careful. This is where we've got to be careful. And I'm going I'm to share some ideas that were shared by John Lennox in a book that I would highly recommend everybody in this room read and read it four times because he's too smart to get it the first time, at least for me. But John Lennox 
shares a lesson from history when it comes to this concept, or I'm putting it in the framework of Philea Sophia and Philea Nikea. And I want to put this for you when it comes to debating and understanding what Genesis is saying versus what people say it's saying. When Copernicus published his famous work on the uh, revolutions of the celestial orbs in 1543, in which he revived Aristarchus' theory, this was hundreds of years before, with attribution, what did Aristarchus come up with? He believed before we had telescopes, before we had anything, he came up with the conclusion that we lived in a heliocentric universe. And guess what else he got right before anything was seen? The order of the planets. How in the flip did he do that? Right? It's an amazing thing. But he had it. So, uh, so what we have is we have Copernicus coming back and pushing this theory. He suggests that the earth and the planets orbited the sun. His view was called into question by many Protestants and by many Catholics. Alike, right? Even before Copernicus, Copernicus published his book in 1539, guess who protested him? Martin Luther. Martin Luther had rejected the heliocentric point of view in rather strong terms in his table talk. Listen to what Martin Luther said. There is talk of a new astrologer who wants to prove that the earth moves and goes around instead of the sky, the sun, the moon, just as if somebody moving in a carriage or ship might hold that he was sitting still and at rest while the earth and the trees walked and moved. But that is how things are nowadays. How's that sound? I swear. It, it just irritates me. Anyway, okay, I'm going to get back from Philea and Ikea. Take a deep breath. When a man wishes to be clever, he must invent something special. You know that thing we call science that's proven now? Martin Luther thought it was inventing something special. Okay, he was a smart guy. I really do love a lot about Martin Luther, but he was an idiot here. Anyway, and the way he does it must needs be the best. The fool wants to turn the whole art of astronomy upside down. Now what's he done? Polemical attacks, right? This is right away. You disagree with me, you're a fool. Okay, fine. That's why you want to play it. However, as Holy Scripture tells us, so did Joshua bid the sun to stand still and not the earth because he believed the earth stood still. I don't care. He's wrong. That's the way it is. Guess who else believed the same idea? John Calvin. Look at what John Calvin said. By what means could it, the earth, maintain itself unmoved? While the heavens above are in constant rapid motion, did not its divine maker fix and establish it? Guess what he did with scripture? He misread it. It was fixed according to him. Some years after Copernicus in 1632, Galileo challenged the Aristotelian view in his famous book, Dialogue Concerning the Two Chief World Systems. You know what was happening in 1632? This kind of argument. This kind of argument that we're in with young earth, old earth, young earth, old earth. What is science? What is religion? Same crap. It never goes away, church. Galileo challenged the Aristotelian view in his famous book, Dialogue, concerning the two chief world systems. This incident has gone down in history as an iconic example of how religion is antagonistic to science. Yet Galileo 
far from being an atheist, was driven by his deep inner conviction that the creator who had endowed us with senses, reason, and intellect intended us not to forego their use and by some other means to give us knowledge which we can attain by them. Galileo held that the laws of nature are written by the hand of God in the language of mathematics. And that human mind, and that the human mind is a work of God's and one that must, that is most excellent. Philia Sophia is a pursuit of wisdom, a love for wisdom. Philia Nikea will put you in a position where you say that anybody who sees things different from you is a fool. And you declare these things, and then what happens when you're proven wrong? You're either... You're either going to humble yourself or you're going to get humbled real quick, right? Here's the amazing thing about the six days of creation. God was declaring in this ordering of his cosmos, this is my temple and I reside in this temple and you as priests will serve me. That's what Genesis 1 is telling you. That is the communication of six literal days. That is what an ancient mind understood. And then we look at it, toss it into a ball, and throw it in the round file. Because we don't understand their perspective. We need to change perspective, guys. And when you do this, trust me when I say this, when you do this with the rest of Scripture, it will modify certain things that you believe and you see. Context is everything. You've got to read things in their perspective. You've got to understand what was the point of the original writing. You've got to look at things from their viewpoint. Because if you don't, you will come up with the most cockamamie Bible teachings and promote them. And it will be dangerous for people. I could list a billion of them. I'm not going to. I just want you to know that we have to be a people who gain this right perspective. So in this series, we have been looking first at, at this idea of God, his cosmos, and order. We've looked at Genesis 1, and we've looked at the definite article, the, which is not there in the original uh, text. We've looked at Genesis 1, 1 through 3, and understood what restrictive relative clauses are and how this has worked in Hebrew grammar. We've zoomed in on the seven days of creation now, and we've seen what was actually being communicated inside of this. There is this beautiful temple language, and God is in control. And next week, we're going to get right into God making his image bearers, which is this priesthood of all believers, which is you, which is me, which is what the original design was. And so we're going to look at this and see how magnificent this job, this, this thing that we're called to actually is. But I'm going to extend the series one extra week, and here's what I'm going to do. And I wanted to share this with you before I stop today. Next week is the image of God, Imago Dei. The week after that, live Q&A. The entire church service. Not, well, worship. <laughs> Sorry, Adam. We'll still sing songs, right? We're going to worship, but we're going to do a Q&A based on Genesis 1. Based on Genesis 1, maybe even Genesis 2 if you want to dabble into it. I want to be able to engage with you, and I want you to be able to engage, and I want to model Philia Sophia. I want to model this pursuit of wisdom together. And it's going to come by us asking questions and hearing feedback and, and then challenging those, that feedback, and we'll push either way. 
This is what is necessary in order to grow as a church in our understanding. But I am going to preempt this by saying this. I'm not going to have all the answers. I would never claim such a thing in all my life. But I will give you what I know, and we will begin a conversation in that light. Okay? So two weeks from now, I want you to come prepared to ask questions. And you can do whatever you want. I mean, if you just want to try to stump me, that's fine. You can beat that. You're going to do it. That's pretty easy. But if you want to ask questions that you've been concerned with, I want you to ask those questions. I want you to push into this because it's a very important matter. Again, why are we doing this series? Because the world we live in is growing ever skeptical, isn't it? You guys heard the testimonies last week. You heard the answers to tough questions last week. You heard what teenagers and others are saying. You know that God prophesies a great apostasy, but it doesn't mean we should just sit there and let it happen, right? We should be a people who are willing to answer questions. You know what that requires? Study. You know what that requires? Digging in. You know what that requires? Philea, Sophia. We must seek for wisdom, church. Amen?